Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Calling all trivia nerds, Brittany here, and I host the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast with my best friend, Meredith. Is your next car ride looking like a snooze fest? We've got The Cure, three rounds of awesome trivia every week. Harry Potter, Disney, science, sports, you name it. No more silent car troubles. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Connect, laugh, and learn with your kids, big and small. (laughs) New episodes every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Mick Sullivan and welcome to The Past and the Curious, this episode 85, which is about caves. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave. I have. I happen to live very close to Mammoth Cave. Not very close, but you know, within a couple hours, which is really cool. I've been, I went when I was a kid, I've been recently, I'm going to take my family again soon. It's a really amazing place and I found a really great story, or actually a friend of mine named Jason told me about a really great story tied to that area and someone in particular, Stephen Bishop, who is a very, very fascinating man. Many people call him the greatest tour guide of his generation or in in history, actually. To go with that, I found some stories that were related to um, people who spent long periods of time isolated in caves in the name of science, which is also very fascinating. I tried to imagine myself doing that and... uh, Things about it sounded great. Things about it did not. I don't know. Maybe you'd be into it. Maybe not. Who knows? Only one way to find out. Let's go ahead and get started with the show. At the Mammoth Cave National Park, there is a cemetery. And in that cemetery is a headstone. And on that headstone is a name that wasn't originally carved into the stone at all. Actually, this headstone wasn't originally supposed to stand near the famous cave entrance in Kentucky at all. But it has now been there for over a century. The gravestone was supposed to mark the final resting place of a soldier who lost his life in the American Civil War and lay buried elsewhere. Once upon a time, this soldier's name was carved into the face of this gravestone, but the family of that fallen soldier never paid the monument maker for it. It's unfortunate, but as a result, it never honored the soldier for whom it was originally intended. With the balance unpaid, this gravestone sat unused for decades until a wealthy Pennsylvania man bought it and sent it to Kentucky. Today, it still has symbols from the war on top, the relief of a sword and a flag, but the mystery soldier's name was long ago removed and in its place, a new name was carved. The gravestone bears the name of the man buried beneath it, Stephen Bishop. Caves are dark. Caves are mysterious. Caves are filled with real and imagined things that can make even the toughest grown-ups 
shiver in their warmest boots. If it's not the pitch dark, it's the dancing shadows, strange echoes, and unsure footing that will give most people the willies. But that's not all. Caves can even be places that life exists. Many are home to living creatures who never see the sun even once in their entire lives. A lifetime of darkness is a strange thought to consider, but plenty of living creatures do it. Maybe you've been in a cave, and if so, you may have been a little scared at some point, or a lot scared at all of the points. Caves have a way of twisting and turning underground, and when there are no lights, it is darker than dark. If now, today, it takes us some courage to step underground, imagine how much courage it took for people to head in before anyone else had ever done so before them, to step bravely into the dark mystery, and at a time before electricity. We should all stand in wonder and amazement at anyone with the courage to do such a thing. Stephen Bishop, the man whose name is on the headstone, is one such early cave explorer who had the courage to do so, and who also earned the wonder and amazement of many people, and not just from history lovers looking into the past. Stephen earned accolades during his lifetime. Stephen Bishop was born enslaved, and like many enslaved people, we don't know his exact birthday. If it was recorded, that information has been lost. All we know is that he was born sometime around 1821. As is also the case with many enslaved Americans, we're not totally certain what the first part of his life was like. Most research tells us that he was moved around a few homes when young as part of the settlement of a divorce and their subsequent legal bills. To people, the living, breathing, and incredibly brave young man that they were trading around was simply viewed as property, rather than the unique individual that he was. Ultimately, a lawyer by the name of Gorin claimed ownership over Stephen. But as a young man, Stephen would find his own versions of freedom in many ways that no one could have seen. In 1838, Franklin Gorin and a business partner bought Mammoth Cave, or what they knew to be Mammoth Cave. Today, we know the massive cave system is the largest in the world at over 400 miles of explored caves. There's still plenty of unexplored caves. But in the 1830s, no one knew how vastly large the cave actually was, especially the guys who bought it. They knew it was unusual and large, but they had no real idea about what they were sitting on. One of the first to figure it out would be Stephen Bishop. When he was 17, he was brought to the area surrounding the cave, and over the next few decades, Stephen became nearly as big of an attraction as the cave itself. At first, he and two other enslaved men, Nick and Matt Bransford, trained as guides because the plan was to grow Mammoth Cave as a tourist destination. Stephen probably found a kind of peace in the cave, and he soon spent more time inside than anyone else on Earth. You have to remember that at this time, the only light he might have would come from a lantern, and if it should go out for any reason, and there were several reasons it could have gone out, he would have found himself in the darkest of darks, deep down in an endless cave. 
You also have to remember that almost all of it, every crack, every drop-off, every underground body of water, every head-banging, low-hanging stalactite, and every forked tunnel was largely undocumented. So one wrong step, whether lantern-lit or not, and Stephen would have disappeared. Even if he wasn't hurt, the likelihood of finding the way back in the dark was daunting. But he was careful, methodical, sure-footed, and gifted with bravery, curiosity, and most importantly, an incredible memory. Any place he had found in the dark before was a place that lived in his mind from that moment on. Just a year later, in 1839, the cave property was sold to a man named Dr. John Crone. Included in the sale was Stephen, again regarded as property. In spite of the limitations of the era placed on him, from then on, Stephen built a reputation as perhaps the greatest tour guide in American history. Almost always wearing a hat, a green jacket, and striped pants, his actor-like good looks got people's attention. But his intelligence, his ability to converse with anyone, and his mystifying knowledge of the underground made him a celebrity. It is said that if people arrived at Mammoth Cave and he wasn't available to give a tour, they'd turn around and leave. And all of this touring gave him a way to make money for himself. After nearly four years of exploring and guiding, no one had seen as much of the cave as Stephen. And while in Louisville at the home of Dr. Crone, Stephen drew a map from memory of Mammoth Cave. Every bend, every fork, every twist, every turn, he drew it all. It was remarkable, nearly 10 miles worth of cave put on paper straight from the mind of Stephen Bishop. And here's the thing, it was wildly accurate. For decades after this, his map was the standard map people used and consulted on Mammoth Cave. And when it was published, it was credited to Stephen Bishop. Also, while at the Crone's house in Louisville, he met Charlotte, a woman who was also enslaved by the owner of Mammoth Cave. She would become his wife and move with him to the Mammoth Cave area. And before long, they had a child, a son named Thomas. And this gave Stephen more to live for. He began to work in earnest to save money to purchase his own freedom and his family's freedom. He gave tours to everyday people, people who had heard about this incredible tour guide and some of these tours lasted as long as 18 hours. He also led tours for famous people, including stars of the day like the touring Swedish opera star Jenny Lind and the important American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson. And of course, he gave tours to the wealthy. Those were probably the easiest to say yes to because they often came with a lot of money. Like the time a man named H.C. Stevenson wanted to use his wealth to see something that had never been seen before. So when he handed over a, quote, fistful of money, Stephen Bishop knew exactly where to take him, a place that he had actually never crossed, and one that would most certainly lead to more discoveries. Why not make the most of it, Stephen probably thought. So, with his fistful of money and this rich man in tow, they went to the bottomless pit. Far into a pathway known only to Stephen and few others was a hole 
with such a sheer and all-consuming drop that when a torch was tossed in, it fell and fell and fell and fell until it was no longer visible. Of course, today we know there is a bottom to the dauntingly named Bottomless Pit, but you can understand why it got the name that it did. Bottom or no bottom, you still would not want to fall into it. And if you're like me, you wouldn't want to make a crossing over the top either, not under any circumstances, but certainly not in the dark with nothing but a lantern and a makeshift bridge of materials you brought to get yourself over the gaping hole. No thank you. But when presented with this idea by Stephen, this rich man with a fistful of money actually said, Yes, please. He probably changed his tune once they made it there, and he watched a torch or two tumble towards the total void below. Either by ladder or chopped down cedar tree, they shimmied across the gaping hole, and on the other side, Stephen quickly found a body of water that he had never found before. In it, he found fish and crustaceans who were as pale as the moon and had no eyes. It was a place that he would bring scientists to see again later. Scientists were often on his tours, and they'd ask him questions that only scientists would know, and they'd ask about formations they'd wondered if Mammoth Cave contained. Stephen, who had learned to read and write, as well as speak some Greek and Latin in his years as a tour guide, would answer them with great specificity and show them exactly what they were wondering about. He was a wildly intelligent and resourceful man, and he knew how to rock some striped pants. One visitor on a tour remembered that Stephen said he was planning to buy freedom for his family with his tour earnings, and they would move to Liberia on the African continent. Stephen found freedom in 1856, and soon after, he and Charlotte bought over 100 acres of land in the Mammoth Cave area. But tragically, he fell ill just a year later and would not survive. He died in 1857, most likely of tuberculosis. He was considered by many to be the greatest tour guide in America. Over 20 years later, in 1878, a Pittsburgh millionaire named James Mellon visited Mammoth Cave and found Charlotte Bishop working in a hotel where she ran the dining room. He asked to see Stephen's grave, so Charlotte took him to the Old Guide Cemetery where she pointed at a cedar log vertical in the ground. Mellon was surprised to find no marker in the man's honor and told her that he would see that a proper gravestone was sent. He took his time. Three years later, a gravestone finally arrived. And it must have been cheap, as the stone had once had another man's name carved into it, the soldier whose family never paid. That name was replaced with Stevens, and a death date was carved beneath it, 1859. Which is incorrect. Stephen Bishop actually died two years before, in 1857. So, there's a lot that's wrong about this grave. But perhaps it's better than nothing. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. 
So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, heads up. You Have 30 Seconds is kind of gruesome this month, but it's the day before Halloween when I'm releasing it, and it's pretty great. Hi, my name is India, and I'm here to tell you about a headless chicken named Mike. Mike was hatched in 1945 on a Colorado farm owned by Lloyd Olson. When it came time for him to become dinner, his head was chopped off. Instead of dying, Mike got up and ran around. Lloyd had missed his jugular vein and the majority of his brainstem, allowing him to act like a normal chicken instead of becoming dinner. Mike was taken on tour and lived another 18 months before choking on some food in an Arizona motel in 1947. To this day, an annual celebration is held in this town every May. Whoa. 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 (laughs) Andy. Whoa. Thanks. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Uh Uh-oh. Watch your step. It's a cave quiz. Okay, question number one. Exploring caves, often called caving or potholing in the United Kingdom, is known in the U.S. and Canada by another name, one of Latin origin. What is that fun word? That fun word is spelunking. I spelunk. You spelunk. We all spelunk. This word is related to the word spelunk, which is actually a Latin word for cave or cavern. Imagine that. Okay, question number two. Many types of caves have things hanging from the ceiling that look like icicles but made of rock. What are those called? Those are called stalactites. Stalactites are often found hanging from the ceiling of caves. The icicle-looking structures are a result of water dripping and carrying minerals, which slowly builds up over time. Likewise, similar pointy growths are often found opposite them, coming from the ground up. These are called stalagmites, and they are a slow accumulation of minerals dripping from the ceiling of a cave. Okay. Question number three, your third and final cave question. Mammoth Cave is the longest known cave. 400 miles have been explored, but there is still plenty of unexplored sections, so stay tuned on that. However, what is the deepest known cave in the world? Or maybe more easily, where is the deepest known cave in the world? The deepest cave in the world is actually kind of a current event because uh, it is being actively explored as we speak. It is known as Veryovkina Cave, and it is in the country, not the state, the country of Georgia. At over 2,223 meters, or 7,200 feet deep, it was only discovered by modern people in 1968. The most recent discoveries and explored sections, which led to an increase of its official depth, were actually conducted in August of 2023. So, like, two months from this moment that I'm saying these words with my mouth. So, 
How about that for a cave question? No more cave stories. When Josie Loras first saw the light of day and breathed in the fresh air of the French Alps in the winter of 1965, she believed it was February 25th. Was she right? She was worse than right. She was wrong. Josie had lost track of time. Quite a bit of time, actually. In total, Josie had lost track of 15 days, because it was actually March 12th. To the rest of the world, her missing days passed by as regularly as any other days do. With alarm clocks and breakfasts, school bells and bird songs, news radio and daily commutes, dinners, and bedtime stories. But for months, Josie had none of these regular happenings, and though the days passed by for others, she had no way of knowing. She ate, but she ate when she felt like she needed to. She slept, but only when she felt like she needed to. You see, Josie was missing the most important time clue of all. Sunlight. Josie Lores was in a cave. And she had been in that cave for science. As long as people have been walking around this big planet of ours, we've been responding to the environment and making sense out of time. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Of course, in the winter, that same old sun goes down much sooner than it does in the summer, but we got used to the steady varying amount of daylight. And we marked time by the rotation of the Earth. One rotation of the Earth is 24 hours, as you probably know. So the general pattern of our days fit into that 24-hour framework. There's a good chance your day has a pattern similar to this. Wake up in the morning, eat breakfast, go to school or work or do home learning, eat some lunch at a similar time each day, have some fun afterwards, maybe do a regular team activity, eat dinner, read some books, listen to some podcasts, go to bed. Maybe it's not all of those things, but whatever you do, there's probably a pattern. I mean, if nothing else, you wake up in the morning, eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then you go to sleep at night. 24 hours later, you probably do it all over again. Scientists who study the human mind, as well as time itself, have a word for these things. It's a German word, Zeitgeber, which means time giver. That means when the sun comes up, your brain knows it's the morning. But that's not all, because when your tongue tastes the Cheerios and milk on your spoon, or the coffee in your cup, that can help your brain to know that it's also morning. All of these little clues that we repeat every day give your body a sense of the time. And there are lots of these Zeitgebers that you encounter throughout your day, every day, and they help your body stay in rhythm. And of all of these time givers, light is the most powerful one. And for a long time, scientists and philosophers and even just regular old people have wondered what would happen to a person's sense of time if they had no light at all? Would they still wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night? With no sunrise and no sunset to give a clue? With no radio or TV to learn what time it was? With no Zeitgebers of any kind? Michel Sifre was a French speleologist, which is a scientist who specializes in caves 
and being a speleologist takes an adventurous spirit, as you might imagine. And Sifra was most certainly adventurous. But he was also curious, and he had been wondering about the effects of darkness and isolation on a human person. In the early 1960s, he was not alone. It was the height of the space race, and people wondered what life in the isolation of space might be like for the few astronauts planning to boldly go where no one had been before. These questions were an inspiration for Michelle to head down into a cave and not come out for 63 days. He had light from a torch, but absolutely no clues about time, and he learned a lot. But it can be hard to be the scientist running an experiment while also being the test subject. So soon, he hired two people to follow in his footsteps underground. He'd do the studying, coordinate the logistics, and make sure that they were okay, and they'd hang out underground until they couldn't take it anymore and decided to throw in the towel. When the job posting appeared for a pair of people who could peace out from their prevailing plans and promenade their way down a pathway under the peaks of the Alps, a Frenchman named Antoine Seny and a Frenchwoman, Josie Lorez, both said, oui. That's French for yes. Antoine was a furniture maker. Josie had worked as a nurse before the experiment, but readily accepted the offer to disappear underground in a cave beneath the French mountains. Maybe she wanted some peace and quiet. I'm sure that there are more than a few nurses out there who could understand the attraction of that. More likely, though, a few months in the cave seemed like an unusual experience to try, and it came with a pretty good paycheck. So down she went, down in a deep, dark hole. Josie was not in the same cave as Antoine, but they were near one another. That made it easy for the command center to check on them both. They had phones, they were on camera, their vital signs were monitored in case there was a medical emergency, but they were given absolutely no clues about what time it was even once. From the moment they stepped in the cave, they'd have to depend on their inner clocks to keep track of time. How do you think you would do? Josie said she never got bored. To keep her company, she shared her neck of the cave, which was about the size of a four-bedroom apartment, with three goldfish and a little white mouse. She brought some knitting needles and yarn, some books, and a tape player so she could listen to music. There was one electric light, a tent, a heater, a simple stove for warming food, of which she brought plenty, and a table and chairs. Ah, this is kind of nice. Let's get used to our underground house, little mouse. Scarves were made, books were read, and music was listened to. That is, until the tape player broke. Oh no, what'll I do without my tunes? I gotta have my cave jams. After a few days of silence, the lack of cave jams motivated Josie, and she figured out how to repair the machine. And soon the walls of the cave were once again reverberating with the sounds of recorded music that she had brought. Josie's number one cave jam? Oh, just some music by a man you might have heard of, Ludwig von Beethoven. Thanks to the phone that they had supplied her with, Josie could communicate with scientists on the outside. But they'd never give her information. Their job was only to hear how she was doing, what was going on, and what day or time she thought it might be. I'm not really sure when time started drifting for her, 
probably pretty immediately. But she found, much as Michelle Sifra had, that the 24-hour cycle might not be the most natural one for humans. It may be what we adopt because we live on Earth and that's what the sun drives us to do, but without the regular sunrise and sunsets, bedtimes and waking times become a little less regular. Antoine actually slept once for 30 straight hours, and yet when he woke up, he thought he had just taken a very short nap. Without any sense of time, he had no idea. And Josie found similar things. Naps may have been full sleeps. Full sleeps may have been nearly two full days on occasion. So while she struggled to keep a firm grasp of what day it was, and made notes when she woke up each mor morning, maybe, when she woke up? Hmm, I don't know. Anyway, while that was happening, she was also struggling with isolation and loneliness. Reading books from her traveling cave library was a common activity for her in the beginning, but as the days went by, she started to lose interest. One day she went exploring a tunnel and stumbled across some bones. Animal bones? People bones? Ancient mystery bones? Imaginary cave monster bones? She wasn't sure, and she didn't care to find out while she was all alone in the underground. Unsure of who or what they belonged to, she decided from that point on to stick to the cave apartment that she shared with her four tiny animal friends. The longer she was down there, kept away from Zeitgebers, the more off her inner schedule got from reality. When she finally threw in the towel, she re-emerged from the cave in a pair of dark goggles so as to protect her eyes from the sun that she had not seen in 88 days. And those 88 days were a world record for the length of time that any woman had ever spent isolated in a cave. Frankly, this probably wasn't a difficult record to set at the time, because not many people had even tried such a thing. I'm not even sure why they would want to, personally. But Josie was surprised that her timekeeping was so far off. There were over two weeks missing by her calculations. Some of it was lost in short bits, and other parts were lost in big chunks. Despite this, she celebrated the success, and was interviewed and covered in newspapers around the globe. It seems that there were no major lasting effects to her health. Of course, it took her a while to get back on a regular sleep pattern, and the color perception of her eyes was off for a while. She figured this was because the red glow of her lantern on the cave walls became the only color she saw for 88 days. and. That'll mess you up. It's kind of interesting that in the middle of the space race, the world paid attention to a nurse from France who boldly traveled downwards to help people understand what might happen to people boldly heading the other direction. And the research still continues. Michelle Sifra did it again, setting a new world record years later by spending six months in a cave in New Mexico. And just this year, in April of 2023, a Spanish woman named Beatrice Flamini, which is a great name, emerged from a cave after spending a year and a half, 500 days in isolation underground. When the crew came to get her and tell her that her time was up, she was, surprise, surprise, asleep. But once awake, she was surprised to learn that time was already up. She thought she had a lot longer to wait. Perhaps this research about what happens to the human body will help scientists continue to plan 
for super far distance human excursions into our universe. Or perhaps they'll only help us to know about what happens if you spend lots and lots of time in a cave and don't know what time it is. It's probably going to be somewhere in between those two realities, though. There's a lot to learn about the human mind. And in any case, you gotta hand it to Josie. 88 days underground is quite a feat. And honestly, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't just a little jealous of all of that sleep that she got. Well, thank you, everyone. This was episode 85 of The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan. And hey, thank you to everyone who came to the Kentucky Book Fest. It was really, really cool to meet so many people. Uh, there was one family in particular that uh, were traveling from South Carolina and pressed play uh, in the car on an episode and heard I was going to be in Lexington and stopped in Lexington on their way to somewhere in Indiana. And that was the coolest. So hello to you all. I bet you're listening at some point. Hello again. Um, it, it, thank you to everyone uh, for sharing this, for spreading the word, using your mouth to tell people about the past and the curious. That is really one of the best. Uh, it's really the best. Um, it's been it's been awesome to share this with so many people. So thank you very much. Um, Patreon people, thank you as well. There will be an ad-free version of this in that feed, uh, as well as all um, the other episodes from this year. I hope you all have a great November. 